The following podcast is provided by truthforsaints.com, a resource for cults, religions, and church history. Hello, and welcome to the Truth for Saints podcast, where we look to provide a Bible-based perspective regarding world religions, cults, sects, denominations, and philosophical worldviews, all for the purpose of equipping the saints of God for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ, as we see written in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 12. My name is Andrew Hamilton, and in our last podcast, we covered part two of Jesus' identity according to the Bible, Jesus' true identity according to the Bible, a Christology series. And uh, we talked about the pre-existent and eternal Christ Jesus. We talked about Jesus as creator, along with the first and third persons of the one triune God. Incidentally, if you want to know more about the Trinity, we do have an earlier podcast where Dr. Hockstetter and myself will uh, go, go into a bit more uh, depth on the Trinity itself. We also, uh, in our past uh, couple installments in this series, we talked about the incarnation of Jesus, including a bit about the concept of theanthropos, Jesus the God-man. His virgin birth and fulfillment of scripture, Jesus' sinless life as the lamb without blemish. Uh, but today on part three of Jesus' true identity, according to the Bible, we will discuss a bit about what the Bible has to say about the ministry of Jesus in life and what he accomplished in his death for those who believe. Even though this will be a four-part series on Christology, you'll find that in these four episodes, we'll only just scratch the surface about the person and work of Jesus, the Son of God. What I'd like to do is maybe begin this uh, part three now with just taking a look, a closer look at Jesus' role while ministering in Judea and Samaria. Now, I've kind of separated this out into Jesus' earthly ministry, but also into the work that he completed and accomplished in his death the work that he accomplished in his resurrection, and uh, and then eventually we'll go into, in, in the next episode, we'll go into his exaltation, resurrection, and his position as uh, eternal priest and king, uh, the one who makes interse- lives to make intercession for the saints. But for right now, uh, let's take a look at his earthly ministry. So you might have heard it said that David the king, who was one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel, he was, he was very unique in that he was considered a prophet and that he wrote works that were in inspired by the word of God. And he was also a priest and king. And he kind of had a, he was able to do things that only priests could do and uh, given honors that only priests could offer. But he was also clearly prophet and king. Well, scholars look at at the life of King David as a sort of foreshadowing uh, for for Jesus, for the for the arrival of Jesus, because this great one that the Lord would send, he promised to Moses, I will raise up one like you from among your brethren. Uh, this person is in the lineage of David. And so we look at Jesus as a prophet, a priest and king. As we see, we, we look at David as a sort of foreshadowing of Jesus, who is that. However, during his earthly ministry, Jesus didn't necessarily carry, carry out the role of the Aaronic priesthood as those who would have been ministering in the temple in Jerusalem uh, were doing during his time. Nor did we see him reign as king, even though at one point in John, the people considered laying hold of him and, and rushing him to, to make him king after he uh, fed them in the wilderness. It, we didn't see that necessarily, but what we'll do in the next uh, episode is we'll look at Jesus as priest according to the order of Melchizedek and as reigning king currently and returning king in the future. Uh, What we can do on this episode, though, is look at uh, Jesus' role. We'll start with his role as prophet. 
and and teacher slash rabbi, which is a Hebrew word for for teacher itself during his time on earth. So the one thing I want to point out about Jesus, the, we've talked about his attributes. We've talked about his sharing the same properties as uh, God the Father. But one of the interesting scriptures that I think is very important that we keep in mind throughout this whole teaching about uh, the person of Jesus is uh, found in a verse in Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in chapter 13, verse 8. And it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, forever. So that the technical term for that theologically is immutability. And that is also a property of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. It is a property of the Trinity. But the thing is that when we think about him as prophet, we think about him as teacher and we think about him as uh, priest, as intercessor, as king. We think of him in all of his roles. He's unchanging. He's forever those things and will will always be those things for those of us who believe. So in starting things, let's, let's look at him first as prophet. So one of the things that he does as prophet is he reveals the father and shows us who the father is. One of the things that I find interesting in this relationship between the, the Trinity and salvation is that you find that Jesus says, no one knows the father but the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. But there again, you also will find Jesus saying, no one comes to the Son, but the Father draw him. So you you see an activity. We know that this uh, conviction and repentance, which is a necessary part of salvation, is given as a gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we see the activity of all three persons of the Trinity at work in bringing a person to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus. Well, one of the things that Jesus did while on earth in his earthly ministry, he revealed for us the Father. And you look in the book of John, as I just mentioned, chapter 1, verse 18, is that scripture that I just that we just discussed, and that is, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, which is exactly what a prophet would do. And the scripture that we've talked about before, again, some of these are from our four great Christological passages, which you probably recall from part one of this series of the true identity of Jesus according to the Bible. You'll probably recall those four great Christological passages that we mentioned. Well, one of them would be John chapter one, which I've just read from. Uh, Looking particularly in John chapter 14, verses six through 10, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Philip, one of the one of his disciples said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the father. So how can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father in me? The words I speak, this is the key part of him as a prophet. The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the father who dwells in me does the works. And I think I mentioned in part two of this series, I think I mentioned you find in the Old Testament when the Lord speaks about the one who is to come, he will speak the words that I put in his mouth. He will only speak those words that I give him to speak. And then Jesus in coming says, I only speak the words of my father and I I only speak the words that he has given me to speak. And so th- this is what a prophet does. Now, there, there are two types of prophecy. There's foretelling and forthtelling. There's, and he did both, certainly did both. 
whereby in forth telling, it's basically giving God's word and breaking it down into application and making it uh, vital to our everyday life. And you also have foretelling, which, which is the prophecy that most people think of when they hear the word prophecy, and that is revealing upcoming events or revealing future events, talking about things that have not happened but yet will happen, whereas the foretelling is more of a revelation of who God is uh, through his word. So in Matthew uh, chapter 11, verse 27, you'll also see that he says, all things have been delivered to me, Jesus, by my father, and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and the one to whom the son wills to reveal him. And that's the scripture that I mentioned uh, just a moment ago. So he only speaks the, the Father's words. And the two passages that I, that I mentioned to you in Deuteronomy, I'll read them for you now just so that we have the, the references. But where we see God the Father speaking of the prophet who is to come, he's speaking to Moses. And he's speaking to him in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 18 through 19. He says, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Then verse 20, of course, I, I, I like that verse 20 is there, and I do want to make mention of it. Verse 20 then goes on to describe for us what a false prophet is. It's someone who comes along and claims to speak in the name of the Lord, but does not have 100% accuracy. That's somebody who's missed it. Now, today you have all kinds of people running around saying we live in an age of grace and therefore we can be wrong because we can be wrong in our prophetic words because we, we live in grace and that's all fine and dandy and everything else. But this one who is to come and will speak only the words that the father will give him to speak and a prophet will only speak what the Lord tells him to speak and will be right every single time. And uh, we do not find the prophets and apostles or so-called prophets and so-called apostles today, none of them living up to that. Uh, And then, of course, um, the correlating passage, which I mentioned to you, is from John 12, John chapter 12, uh, verses 48 through 50. And uh, I'll just go ahead and read that for you so that you have it clear from the, the word of the Lord, as opposed to just my quoting it. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, this is the Lord Jesus speaking, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, this is the Lord Jesus speaking, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life, therefore the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Now that is a complete and direct correlation between God the Father speaking to Moses saying, I will send this servant and uh, the Lord Jesus through through John saying, I only speak what I have what I have been given to speak. And that's what a true prophet does. And that's who Jesus was. He revealed to us who the Father was, spoke accurately and clearly. And those sayings of his, when he says, this is an important thing about this prophet, because one of the things that he does, what he does say is, he who hears these sayings of mine and puts them into practice, I would liken to a man that builds upon the rock. And when the storm beats vehemently against that house, it will stand. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, uh, but he who hears my words and does not put them into practice, I would liken to a man that builds on the sand. For when the rain and the storms beat against the house, it will fall and how great the fall will be. 
Jesus' words, no prophet has ever made such a declaration as that. No prophet has ever made such a declaration as that. And that is only because Jesus occupies the highest place of all prophets. And you, you probably recall from Scripture where the disciples, the, the Peter, James, and John, were called up into the Mount Transfiguration, whereby Jesus appeared before, uh, along with Elijah on one side and Moses on the other, and he was there in the center, center to both of them. And you see a picture in that moment of a glorified Jesus, but superior to the law, superior to the prophets in every way. And that's Jesus, the prophet in his earthly ministry. The other, the other area I'll touch on a little bit here is as teacher and rabbi. The thing about Jesus is he provided instruction in the understanding of scripture. And he provided instruction in the understanding of who God is. And what these things actually mean, and and you see as he want, as he works his way through Samaria and Judea where he ministered, you'll find that so much perversion had crept in, so much, uh, so much of a perverted understanding of who God is and what He expects of His people, what He wants of His people. They were all completely off base. In fact, in one, at one point, Jesus said to the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures for in them you believe you have eternal life. But I say to you, it is these that testify of me. All of the scriptures testify of who Jesus is and the direction that he is taking. The thing I find interesting is I was just reading in my, in my personal devotion, I was reading Genesis chapter three this morning, and uh, it covers the very sad story of the fall of man. But one of the interesting thing is, things about Genesis chapter 3 is, after the fall, after the Lord had delivered the judgment on the woman and the judgment on the man and the judgment on the snake, uh, on Satan himself, of course, we, we, there's a prophecy built into that which, where he says, I will put enmity between you, your seed and her seed. You will strike his heel, but her seed shall crush your head. Therein we see an early, early indication that the Lord already had it, uh, the, the plan put together in, in full advance. But one of the things I found interesting is immediately after that, the Lord says, now he knows uh, good and evil. Let's remove the tree of life, lest he become like one of us and live forever, which I thought was such a loving, careful, kind act for him to do. Because had mankind in his fallen state eaten of the tree of, of life, he would have been as the angels, but, but the problem is he was already fallen. So he would have been as demons, who there is no repentance for demons. There is no salvation for demons. They are just to be cast in the lake of fire for all eternity. And that's their end. There, there is no redemption for them. Uh, they live forever and they are fallen forever. And so in order to prevent that from happening to mankind in his grace and in his goodness and in his kindness, he protected us. And immediately he knew what he was going to do. The first thing he did is, is remove the threat that would have made it to where mankind no longer could have been redeemed, where we, were, we, we would have been lost forever. And he protected us by removing that tree of life. We blew it by partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But uh, thanks be to God that he removed the tree of life. So there, there was the door was still open for him to come down 
to purchase our salvation for us, to, to redeem us. Right. Let's get into a few more of these scriptures then for teacher rabbi. So uh, as I say, he, he provided instruction about the scriptures and then and explained that they are, they speak of him, that they all point to him. Matthew chapter four, verse 23, just, this just will tell you a little bit. Jesus was going throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So teaching in their synagogues, that was a, a way of life for him. Everywhere he went, and in John chapter 3, uh, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Now, these are the Pharisees who, I talked about them, who these Pharisees are in one of our earlier episodes when I was explaining the intertestamental period of the Bible, why, why the Bible, we can trust the Bible. I explained the, the intertestamental period and uh, where the Pharisee came from. You don't see Pharisees in the Old Testament, but you do see them in the New Testament. And where do they come from? How do they pop up on the scene? But for this one, uh, suffice it to say that they, they were the Jewish religious leaders of the time. There was a man of them named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, that means teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Even his enemies knew who he was and who he, where, he was, where he was coming from. These weren't innocent men trying to protect the purity of Judaism. These were men who knew who he was, knew where he came from. They just didn't want him to have any part or take away what they had. And, that's, and he reveals that for us. So uh, lest we make the mistake about these these uh, Pharisees, they, aren't, they didn't have a noble heart. They had a, quite a wicked heart because they knew who he was and they knew that he came from God. Well, in verse 3, Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And that's a key verse for all of us. Doesn't matter what religion you're in, you must be born again. You you can't be just a super great guy, a super nice guy. You can't be the Dalai Lama and expect to go to heaven. You can't be uh, Mahatma Gandhi and expect to go to heaven. You must be born again by faith in the, in the Lord Jesus and his shed blood on the cross in order to be saved. And that passage there in chapter 3 is a, a verse that explains for us what the gospel is, starting with the fact that we need to be made brand new in the Lord Jesus. So moving on, John, John chapter 13, verses 12 through 15, a bit more about his teaching. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. This is Jesus himself declaring himself as teacher and as Lord, saying, you're correct in calling me these things, for that is what I am. That's what he said. But now what he was trying to say is, now look at what I've done. Look at how different he is, Jesus, washing the feet of those who would be his followers. I just, what comes to mind is a lot of charismatic leaders that I used to actually work for and be on leadership teams for in the old days of wandering around in um, a theological fog, if you will. And I recall how they would expect everyone to, to drop what they're doing and serve them. In fact, the favorite saying of one of them, uh, the, the pastor there would say, uh, it was our job to serve the man of God. He would refer to himself in the third person as the man of God. But... It's not just him. That's just a charismatic thing. That's a, a Pentecostal thing where they have a, a, a very hyperinflated uh, sense of themselves to a place where uh, they, they believe that they're far above everyone else and everyone else should serve them. But you'll see that in everything. You'll see that in Catholicism. That was one of the things that reminded me of Catholicism, my old, the old days where 
priests would wander around and would expect, you know, sort of everybody to part like the Red Sea as they walked through a room and that sort of thing. And that's just not how Jesus is. That's not how he was. And that's not how he wants you and I to be if we're believers in him, especially not if, if the Lord should find it in his will to appoint us as leaders in his church. He certainly doesn't want us to behave this way and act this, walking around expecting people to serve us. But, but rather, as he gave us an example, as teacher in John chapter 13, where he humbled himself and uh, served and washed the feet. Now, and just another side note, as a cultural note, uh, washing feet in uh, the Near East 2,000 years ago is far different than washing the feet in uh, a city in America or a you know, city in, in the UK or town in the UK. You might have a bit of sweat underneath the socks that you take off, and that's pretty nasty. Uh, no, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about feet in sandals, camel dung, mud, dirt, filth, you name it, absolutely filthy feet. And everyone had it that way. That was just the way it was. So to wash another person's feet is to lower yourself to a very, very servantile level that you should wash another person's feet. And in the same passage, I won't go into all of it, but uh, he comes to Peter and Peter said, no, no, no way, no way will you wash my feet. I'm the one that should be washing your feet. And the Lord Jesus recognized a bit of pride in Peter at that time and, and said, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you'll have no part in me. And then so, so Peter, typical of Peter said, then my, my head as well, my, my, my feet and my, my, head, my head as well and everything else. So, and, and Jesus said, no, the feet will be enough. So a very interesting exchange there that we must also be humble to be served. But at the same time, uh, if we find ourselves in a position of leadership, then we, we must be at the ready to serve in the way that Jesus did. All right. So moving on, uh, uh, the final passage we'll talk about with as Jesus as teacher slash rabbi, Second John one nine. Now this is uh, this is a very stern warning from a letter of John. He says, uh, "Whoever transgresses, and I think some some translations say go too far, which is essentially the same thing, and does not abide in the teaching slash doctrine of Christ, he does not have God. He who abides in the teaching of Christ has both the Father." and the Son. So this goes back to that the scripture I quoted earlier, which is consistent with the scripture I quoted earlier, where Jesus' teaching, the words of Jesus, are life-giving, but rejecting them is certain death. And by death, I mean not just that, because we're all going to die. All the apostles died, and all of the disciples of that era died. Everyone's going to die physically, but his words are life-giving, eternal life-giving, and receiving them and putting them into practice uh, yields eternal life, but rejecting them, refusing them, results in uh, eternal death and separation. That, that's His words carry so much more weight as a teacher than any other teacher on the face of the planet. So that's his earthly ministry. Now, I want to talk a little bit about and, and explain a little bit about what Jesus does through these things. So one of the things uh, we talked about what he accomplished in his earthly ministry just now. And now what we're moving into is what he accomplished in his death on the cross. Why is it so important, his death on the cross? 
One of the things that he does in his death on the cross is he provides atonement for sin. So the historical orthodox position uh, for, for atonement is the penal substitutionary. I understand that there are different views on, on the atonement. In fact, I think there are four main views on the atonement. But my view is uh, in keeping with penal substitutionary. And the idea behind penal su- substitutionary is that it's basically penal or a punishment. It's probably an oversimplification, but punishment that uh, Christ received the punishment penal that was due to us as sinful, rebellious uh, creatures, uh, which is substitutionary, meaning he received the punishment on our behalf, what was due to us. So it's penal, the punishment, and he was the substitute for it. And that's the idea, or a vicarious expiation, if you will. Some people call it that. Another couple of big words there for you, but he basically, in our stead, took on uh, the punishment that was due us. Uh, he did this to atone. And the word t- atone comes from uh, the word kippur, which is uh, a Hebrew word. You, you, you would know the word kippur. That's going to be one of those words that even Westerners would know because of the holiday of Yom Kippur. It is basically to make satisfaction of one's offenses. It's uh, it's kind of a reparation of sorts. And that's something that only Christ can do. So in light of this, meaning our sins against the Almighty. We have incurred a debt, a sin debt, and we, we, have, we have offended and need to make that offense right. Atonement can make that offense right, but we are unable to make that offense right. Uh, but here's what uh, Jesus accomplished at the cross. Look, look in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Follow God's example, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, as dearly loved children... And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us. And here's the part I want you to pay attention to. Gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Fully and completely atoning for our sins there. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5 of Ephesians. And in Hebrews uh, chapter 7, verse 27, they're talking about the Lord Jesus or the high priest. Jesus is the high priest uh, who does not need daily like the other high priest to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Uh, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Now, the thing is, this is the important thing about the sinless birth of Christ. He doesn't have to offer sin, offer up a, an atonement for his own sins because he was born without sin and lived without sin, and he was the perfect sacrifice, the perfect, the unblemished lamb. But the key thing there is that Jesus did once for all when he offered up himself. He basically covered all sins, thereby providing a reparation for the offense, so to speak, the offense of sin against God, which is an eternal offense that we cannot, we, we can never make that right. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, we also see a picture of atonement. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time, the apostle Paul writes, the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, here's the part to listen to. Verse 12, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. Now, that that passage in Hebrews will also go well in our final part four in this series when we talk about the ascension and glorification or or exaltation of the Lord Jesus, where he is now and what what took place uh, at the point of his ascension into heaven. Now, so we have atonement, which talks about our offenses towards God and providing a reparation for the offenses, so to speak, uh, against God. 
Now, this other word is propitiation, which is a sacrifice uh, that's offered to turn away God's wrath. Now, propitiation is something that's known throughout all religions that deal with, in fact, it's still practiced by some of the other religions today. Uh, Propitiation is offered uh, to satisfy the wrath of Shiva in Hinduism. It's basically an offering given to turn away the wrath or to dispel the wrath or turn away the wrath of of the God that was offended. So we talked about atonement in the offense itself, but not anything that took away the wrath for the offense in the first place. And that's what propitiation does. So as an atonement and a propitiation, and so many of these are so closely tied that even on occasion they're, they're used uh, the, interchangeably. We talk about propitiation as a sacrifice that was offered and given to turn away God's wrath. Now, when we talk about the God of the Bible, we think, does the God of the Bible have wrath? There are a lot of people. There is this belief where uh, we, for some reason, think that the only wrathful God is the Roman Catholic God, or the only wrathful God is the Old Testament God. We have all these weird ideas. But the truth of the matter is, there is wrath. God does speak of having wrath. And believe it or not, uh, Jesus, as much as people like to picture him as sort of the mealy-mouthed, pasty-white, gentle, uh, Western European type of figure that we see him painted and and put in movies and that sort of thing. This is God Almighty, and God Almighty, Jesus, has wrath, and it's spoken of his wrath, his wrath is, is talked about in the book of Revelation. Well, let's first take a look at whether or not God does have wrath even today. So let's look at Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, and see for ourselves whether or not wrath is still applicable today. Here the Apostle Paul writes in in Romans 1, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. They, the men, the unrighteous men, are without excuse. So this is against all people who reject him and think, well, you know, I live in the bush country of uh, Central Africa or Central Australia, and therefore I'm off the hook. I don't have to believe in Jesus. I've never heard of him, that sort of thing. But the truth is, he makes himself known to all of us. No matter where we are, we all know him. And so all of us suppress the truth and righteousness. But what we pray for, for others, is that uh, the Lord would send the Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, to sort of pry up the fingers, if you will, or allow them to see the truth that, uh, that, that they have a need for a Savior. Now, another passage which talks about uh, the wrath of God is John chapter 3, verses 34 through 36. And as I just said, chapter 3 being one of those great passages which describes the way of eternal life, here in that same passage, you'll see the evidence for the wrath of God being present even today. The Apostle John says in chapter 3, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son. These are the words of Jesus and has given all things into his hand. He who believes the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God. That's Jesus' prophet. For God does not give the Spirit by measure. That's the Trinity. 
That's God the Father, the Spirit, and the Lord Jesus. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. Now, what about Ephesians, uh, the Apostle Paul in chapter two says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we see the wrath of God abiding on those who don't believe Jesus, the wrath of God. God abiding on those who continue to live as the world says to live instead of as the, the way that the Lord Jesus says to live. And in, in Ephesians chapter five, verses five through seven, that same book, but a few chapters later, he, the apostle Paul writes, for this, you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man uh, who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, that is fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, idolatry. That's what he's talking about. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. So the wrath of God exists. It's there. It does exist. And it's on those who don't believe. And it's all that those who don't believe have to look forward to is the wrath of God. But this nonsense teaching in the church that the wrath of God does not exist is only doing a disservice to people who don't know the Lord Jesus. Now, for those of us who do know the Lord Jesus, who have trusted in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, this is the great thing, these verses that I'll read to you next, which is God providing Jesus as a propitiation. That's God appeasing his own wrath through propitiation. Now, remember I said Jesus has wrath. It's Wrath isn't something just for the Father. Wrath is is an attribute of God Almighty, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the wrath of God. The Lord Jesus was provided as propitiation. So in essence, as I say, he appeases his own wrath, turns away his own wrath through providing his own propitiation, himself as propitiation. We look in Romans chapter 3, 23 through 25. The Apostle Paul writes, there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We'll talk about Jesus, the Redeemer in just a moment. Verse 25, this is what I want you to pay attention to. Being justified, let me back up and say verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. But it's for those of us who have believed in the Lord Jesus, the wrath no longer exists for us. We are trusting in the Lord Jesus to be our propitiation. We trust in him and we thank the Lord our God for giving his son for us, that he would love us enough to care and to completely satisfy his own wrath towards our sin against him, our rebellion and, and evil towards him. He would, he would wipe that out himself. He would bear the weight of that himself. And he would be a propitiation for that himself. There's no way we could provide something that would turn away his wrath. 
but also look in first John chapter two, verses two. And he said, and he himself, speaking of Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, this might be one of those verses that can be misunderstood. Some might think it's universalism saying that anybody in the whole world is now uh, a part of the family of God and that sort of thing. But I'm afraid it doesn't work that way. Because what this verse is saying quite clearly is that uh, the Lord Jesus has been a propitiation, a turning away of the wrath for any and all that would receive him, any and all that would come to him. But the atonement is not limited, but that uh, any and all who would turn, repent of their sins and come to the Lord Jesus could be saved, but they won't. And so, therefore, the, the, the atonement is only applied to those who are saved, who are the elect. And those are the only ones that actually do have the atonement applied are those who have come to faith in, in the Lord Jesus and trust him for the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, look in First John, getting back to uh, propitiation, looking in First John chapter 4, the same, same book, a couple chapters down. Uh, The Apostle John writes, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is consistent with the rest of scripture, which declares that uh, it wasn't us that moved towards God. It wasn't us that loved the Lord. It wasn't us that reached out for the Lord, but it was him that reached out to us. It was him that provided all that was necessary, the atonement, the propitiation for our sake. Now, there's another concept here, and that's the idea that uh, the scripture tells us that we, in our sins, we are slaves to sin. We are dead in our sins and trespasses, but we are slaves to sin. And in fact, uh, even as Christians, we are told uh, that there are those who are slaves to sin, but now what we are to do as Christians, we are to be slaves to righteousness. We are to be bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. As slaves, we, we owed such a sin debt that we couldn't pay that sin debt, and we were stuck in slavery for, forever. There's no way that we could pay our way out. We, there's no way we could buy our own freedom. We were slaves and uh, we owed a fortune and there's no one that could pay that ransom for us. Well, the Lord Jesus acted as our redeemer, providing a ransom. And as you'll see in the scriptures that I list, the law is our slave owner, so to speak. But not that we're a slave to the law, but we're a slave to sin. But the law is the slave owner, which basically declares you and I guilty. That's the Old Testament. It's holding up a big giant mirror to you and a big giant mirror to me to let us see that we are fallen, lost, broken, sinful, rebellious creatures towards our maker. And we are desperately wicked and desperately in need of someone to come and redeem us, to pay our owner what we owe and buy our freedom for us so that we get off of the the slave block, if you will. That's the idea of a redeemer, and Jesus is called the redeemer. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, again, I just went over this, but let's go back to that verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift of his grace, here it is, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We are justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. It's a great gift that God gives us, forgiving us of our sins and paying that sin debt on our behalf. 
in, and in Job, this is the great thing I love about the Old Testament. In Job uh, chapter 19, you see pictures of Jesus throughout the Old Testament. And it's, it's just what Jesus said. He said, the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but it is these that testify of me. And you can see this time and time again in one of those passages of the Old Testament in the book of Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. Job says, as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, that tells you of a resurrection, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. This is Job, who is desperately in need of a Savior. He recognizes his need of a Redeemer. In the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So that he might redeem those who were under the law. That's you and I, under the law, who is the slave owner. Uh, but we are slaves to sin, but the law is the one that puts us in that place that, where we recognize that we, are, that we have failed the Lord God in his perfection. But we are set free from that. We are set free from our slavery to sin. And we recognize as the Apostle Paul that the law is good, it's pure, it's perfect, it's our schoolmaster. Uh, but it doesn't save. It doesn't save at all. In fact, it just uh, shows us how lost and broken we are apart from Jesus. And Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians in chapter 1 verse 7, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, I, I'm hoping that you're seeing a trend here that oftentimes when we see redemption mentioned, we see uh, forgiveness and we see grace mentioned in the same context, shortly within the same passage, we'll see redemption by the grace of God. That's the gift of God. We talked about the grace of God and that's his gift and his kindness and his goodness. In Colossians chapter one, this is one of our, Colossians one is one of our great Christological passages, as you recall from one of the earlier installments of this series. Colossians chapter one, verses 13 through 22, for he, and that goes back to verse three, God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom Jesus, his beloved son, we have redemption. That's Jesus as redeemer, redemption, the forgiveness of sins, the one who says, I have found a ransom, the one who said, who provides the very ransom and the redemption. Well, we've heard from the apostle Paul, even Job speaks of waiting for the redeemer, looking forward to the redeemer. Now we hear uh, Peter talk about the redemption of the Lord Jesus. In First Peter, in the epistle of Peter, in chapter 1, verses 17 through 21, he says, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here on earth in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct uh, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times to you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So 
Verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but rather with the precious blood of, of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, which is the key verse that I, I would like to draw attention to in that passage. That's Jesus himself redeeming us by his blood. It is his shed blood on Calvary on the cross that works atonement for us. It is his death as the propitiation, and it is he himself who is the acting redeemer in the process of all of it. Uh, and this redeemer is sent from God the Father on our behalf, acting as our redeemer, buying us off the slave block of sin. Which brings us to yet another ministry of Jesus, his ministry of reconciliation. Now, as a result of this atonement we've been talking about, this propitiation and this redemption, him being a redeemer, paying our sin debt as we were slaves to sin under the law, but he paid the price required to win our freedom, our salvation, results in a reconciliation with Almighty God between man and Almighty God. Now, this goes back to the book of Genesis. So one of the contentions that I make on a regular basis is that without Genesis, you don't have original sin. You don't have the fall of mankind. You don't have the fall of Adam. Uh, without a, a proper understanding of Genesis or a skewed understanding of Genesis, you lose the idea that we are all fallen, going all the way back to Adam, the first created man and the first created woman. And what had happened is a break in the relationship. In the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die, the Lord said to Adam. And we see that Adam lived for about a 950, 60 years, something, something like that. So obviously, either God was lying to Adam or he was telling him the truth. He is the God of truth, telling him the truth. And something within Adam died at the moment they ate of the fruit. And that is what we contend regarding the fall of mankind. It goes back to Genesis. It goes back to the original sin. And then this passes on to you and me. And we are born with a sin nature. That is a desire to do evil, a desire to do anything but good and right things by Almighty God. So you and I have this sin nature, and I've explained it before on past podcasts. Um, actually, I would go back to what Dr. Robert Morey regarding nature. Now, he ex used the example of a dog. Uh, you put a bowl of broccoli in front of a dog. You put a bowl of ground beef in front of a dog. The dog will choose the ground beef. Why? Because of his choice, because of his free will, or rather because of his nature. Uh, he will choose the ground beef and he will not choose the broccoli. In a similar way, we are fallen in such a way that we choose sin because it's our nature. We sin because we're sinners. But with Jesus' atonement, Jesus' redemption, with Jesus' propitiation, he repairs the breach. In fact, he's even referred to as the restorer of the breach in the Old Testament. He's the one that restores the breach between God and man. Reconciliation, bringing us back together. Let's look at what Romans says in Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. It's one of my favorite verses. In fact, Romans is an absolutely brilliant book to understand the gospel, how the true gospel actually works from start to finish. 
So Romans, uh, starting in verse 8 of chapter 5 of Romans, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, much more than having now been justified by his blood. Here's the part I want you to pay attention to. We shall be saved from wrath through him. There's propitiation we've talked about in verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved through his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So this reconciliation, in fact, in another in another scripture, the Apostle Paul says that we are ambassadors of Christ. All believers are ambassadors of Christ, pleading with mankind, please be reconciled to God. This is what our plea is in presenting the gospel for mankind to embrace the Lord Jesus, who brings about a reconciliation between God and man. Another verse is in Colossians chapter one. Again, we keep going back to that power passage for who Jesus is and what he has done and what his work is on the earth. Colossians chapter one, verses 19 through 22. We go back to this verse, this passage. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And here's the part to pay attention to here in verse 20. And through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood. There's your atonement shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, this is verse 21, because of your evil behavior, verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. So we see clearly that it is God in Christ, God in his son, reconciling the world to himself, which is a demonstration of his love, as we see in Romans chapter five. It's an amazing demonstration of God's love for mankind in that he reconciles the world through Jesus, redeems the world by his own blood, turns back his own wrath by enduring the cross. And the benefactors of this are you and I, those of us who have put our trust in the Lord Jesus. I'll end this section with this verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, namely, this is uh, verse 19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Well, how about this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.19, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. And this is that, this is the verse whereby we are reconciled and then we preach the gospel, the full gospel, the true gospel. By, by full gospel, please understand there are a lot of weird ideas of what full gospel is, and that's a, a charismatic aberration that it has to do with the Holy Spirit, hoobly gooblies, and that sort of thing. That is not what I'm talking about when I say the full gospel. When I say the full gospel, I mean the fallen condition of man and his eternal separation from God, his fallen nature, and utter and complete inability to work his way or to restore himself to his God but that God restored us to himself by his own work. I mean, the, the full gospel, the good news is that it's done. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. And so it is done. 
Now it is a matter for us to look and to embrace what Jesus has done and to receive his payment on the cross as payment for our sins. And we do that uh, by calling on the Lord to save us. So what this does is it points us to Jesus as Savior, as Savior of the world, Savior of those who are lost in sin and who put their faith in him. And this is, of course, this is not only a work of his earthly ministry, but it's his title. But ultimately, it goes back to to the reference that I made. This really wasn't completed until Jesus declared on the cross, it is finished. Now, God saw the end from the beginning, knew that it would happen, knew that it would take place. But until it was taken place on the cross and until he had fulfilled all that uh, he was to do on it during his earthly ministry, it was not yet complete. So it's at that moment he said it is finished. Well, let's look at the Old Testament. What does the Old Testament have to say about the Savior? In Hosea, one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament, chapter 13, verse 4, Yet I have been the Lord your God since the land of Egypt, and you were not to know any God except me, for there is no Savior besides me. And yet all the New Testament authors refer to the Lord Jesus as our Savior. Now, how can they do that? without violating God's word. Well, they do that because this is God incarnate in flesh, as we've talked about the incarnation. This is God reconciling the world to himself through his son, the incarnation of God himself. There is no savior besides me, and he he himself is our savior. Isaiah, another one, another Old Testament, um, another Old Testament reference, 49 verse 26. The Lord says, I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh and they will become drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine and all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your savior and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. So if Jesus isn't one in being with the father, if we do not have a Trinitarian understanding of who God is, well, we have a problem with these verses because there's no savior, Hosea says, besides the Lord. And the Lord declares himself to be our savior and our redeemer. And yet that is who Jesus is. And that is who Jesus is referred to as. So therefore, either Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh on the face of the planet, or the Old Testament and the New Testament authors contradict one another. But I submit to you, that there is plenty of scripture in both Old and New Testament to, to tell you and to tell me that the Savior would come here to the earth and would carry out his ministry as Savior for you and for me. Now, let's look at the New Testament then in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21. The Apostle Paul writes, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ verse 21, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Now we're going to talk on the the final episode about his glorification, about the exaltation of the Lord Jesus, what happens after the resurrection. This will take us up to the resurrection next week. It will deal with the resurrection and his exaltation. So we'll talk a bit more uh, about what Paul was talking here, the conformity with the body of his glory. 
in Titus, the Apostle Paul says again in, the, in his epistle to Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, verse 12, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Key verse there, Titus chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us, there's redemption again, from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That verse 13 is a key verse because it not only tells us Jesus Christ as Savior, but it also refers to Jesus Christ as God. Now, in Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, this is Luke, of course, who penned the book of Acts. And uh, he talks about Peter speaking to the rulers, elders, and high priests of Israel when he was being questioned for healing someone. And so his answer to them at that time in Acts chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 10. The apostle Peter says, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole, referring to the man he just healed. Verse 11, this is the stone, speaking of Jesus, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And that is a key verse that we'll end this particular episode on, but we'll we'll pick up this series again next week. But that's the key thing to think about. There is no salvation in any other. There's no savior besides Jesus, nor is there salvation in any other, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And he's speaking of Jesus Christ of Nazareth in verse 10, just prior to this. So as I say, we will end this episode on that verse due to time, but uh, my hope and prayer is that you, you hear these words, you hear these scriptures and recognize that the true God of the universe has come to earth and has revealed himself to men through his son, the Lord Jesus. And that if you put your faith in him, Jesus of the Bible, for the forgiveness of your sins, calling out to the, on the name of the Lord, calling out on the name of the Lord to have mercy on you and forgive and wash your sins away, that you would come to embrace the God of the Bible in truth so that you can lay hold of and lay claim to an eternity with him and either sonship or daughter to him now today. That's my hope. That's my prayer. And if you're already a believer, my hope also is that this series on the person of Jesus uh, has, has helped you to receive a deeper understanding and grounding in God's word as to what the scriptures have to say regarding the Savior in whom you've come to believe in his incarnation, in his pre-incarnated state, in, in his life ministry, his earthly ministry, which, which will take us up to, the, to, the, to his crucifixion and what he accomplished in his crucifixion. My hope is that you're able to take this way and have a greater understanding. We'll be back next time to wrap up this series on Christology as we examine the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father where he is now. We'll talk, we'll give some scriptural references for the resurrection, but also we'll talk about a few of the theories uh, for critics of the resurrection. And we'll provide a few answers for those as well, where we'll also look into the exaltation of Jesus to his rightful place at the right hand of the Father where he is now. 
And then, of course, we'll discuss a bit about him as the soon-coming king or the returning king, which genuine Christians everywhere are looking to and looking forward to. So if you'd like more information about issues of theology, apologetics, world religions, and worldviews, denominations, church history, cults, sects, or even a discussion of what is truth, all of these topics and more can be found on our website, truthforsaints.com, or you can follow us on Twitter at truthforsaints, all one word, lowercase, and we'll use these channels to keep you up to date on future episodes and additions to the website. I am Andrew Hamilton. Thank you for listening and feel free to subscribe to receive future episodes and we'll see you next time right here on the Truth For Saints podcast. Thank you for listening to this podcast provided by truthforsaints.com.